the uh, the main the main ayah for today, inshallah, is uh, a very famous ayah that we're all familiar with at the end of Surah Al-Anbiya, Surah 21, in Ayah 107. Allah says, Allah is saying that we did not send you for any reason, referring to the Prophet, we did not send you for any reason except as a mercy to creation, except as a mercy to to mankind, but even it extends further than mankind to all of uh, to all of creation, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And what's important for us to to remind ourselves of, for me to remind myself of, is who's saying that, right? God Himself, Allah Azza wa is the one saying that the main reason why we sent you mercy, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So what is the main Sunnah of the Prophet, he embodied mercy. What's our main takeaway from the life of the Prophet? It should be mercy. If I want to be more like the Prophet, where do I start? Mercy. What can I do to be more like the Prophet? Rahma. To try to embody these concepts. Everything that the Prophet did, that the Prophet stood for, that the Prophet you know, taught us through his example and through his words, والسلام, it all falls under this primary umbrella of mercy, of rahma. So if somebody, generally speaking, if somebody, if you know, they're trying to come closer to their deen, but then the ironic and uh, unfortunate result for some people, we ask Allah to protect all of us from this, if someone is coming closer to their deen, but then the fruit of their effort, the fruit of them closer, coming closer to their deen, if that fruit is bitter, then they're not doing something right. Because what should happen if someone is coming closer to the sunnah of the Prophet, coming closer to the Qur'an, this book of Rahmah, coming closer to Allah Azza wa Jal, Ar-Rahman, the most merciful, the source of all, mer- of all mercy, subhanahu wa ta'ala, what should happen within the heart of the person, of the individual, of the believer, is that naturally there should be more and more and more compassion that they're living, that they're embodying, that they're thinking about, that they're worrying about. How can I become a better person? How can I become a more compassionate person? So what should happen as somebody comes closer to their deen, what should happen is that fruit becomes sweeter. They become more compassionate. They become more generous. They become more easygoing, more kind towards people. And if the opposite is happening, there's nothing wrong with the example of the Prophet ﷺ, there's nothing wrong with the beauty that the Prophet left behind, which we're continuing to benefit from until now. The issue is not in that, it's not in the Quran, it's not in any of that. But what's our understanding, right? How is my heart receiving this message? How is my heart interacting with it? If I'm becoming more merciful, inshallah, that's a good sign. If I'm becoming less merciful, then I should take a step back and reflect who is my Prophet really? Right? So if somebody, if they, if they really want to give somebody a hard time and really critique them, you know, very, very rudely regarding, you know, any specific sunnah, where is the sunnah of being merciful, right? It wasn't just what the Prophet said, how did he say it? How did he interact with people? How did he embody this, uh, this important concept of rahmah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? So there, there are a couple angles that I want to touch upon this topic from. Uh, the, let me try to adjust this. The... The first and foremost, um, uh, sorry, not, not first and foremost, but the first uh, topic that I want to get to is when the Prophet ﷺ, when he was a child. And actually, Dr. Ahmed Ben-Gura has a beautiful story uh, of this in his, uh, in his book uh, on the seat of the Prophet, Indelible Footprints, ﷺ, when he was 
a child, from the very beginning, you find abundant mercy, you find generosity, you find kindness, you find compassion. And it may sound a little bit strange, but it'll make sense in a few moments, inshallah. When, when Halima Saadiya, when she and her husband, and, and she had a, her own uh, baby boy at that time, when they were going into Mecca, because they, they had this practice where there was this, like, this agreement between uh, some of the, uh, the Bedouin tribes and then also Quraysh, where they would go and they would basically uh, you know, strike some kind of an agreement with uh, the parents of, the child, of a child being raised in Mecca when they're still very young. And they would come to an agreement, some kind of financial agreement. Think of like a contractual agreement, how much and for how long. And they would take custody of that child or those children, and then they would raise them in the desert. One of the reasons was because it was healthier, they were less likely to be exposed to potential diseases, to potential plague, for example. Um, the, they had basically better access to language resources. Think of it in that way. Uh, it was, you know, they had more room to play and to explore and, you know, to connect more with nature as opposed to just kind of sitting at home all the time in the city. So there were many reasons why they would do this. So when, when Halima and her family, when they were entering Mecca, the, the plan not only of herself, but of everyone, the norm was the, the, the last child that you want to take custody of is an orphan, right? Does anybody know why? Why would they have you know, orphans kind of at the bottom of their list as opposed to the top? Does anybody know? Why, like, why would they not want to? Why weren't orphans at the top of the list? I'm going to start calling on people. Hmm? Financial. Because if, if the child's, because the Prophet's father, the Prophet's father, Abdullah, he passed away before the Prophet was born. So that, that was already his situation. So they didn't, people, they didn't want to take custody of an orphan because financially, chances are that family's not going to have nearly as much money, as much wealth as, you know, as opposed to another situation where the father is in the picture. So there, there were reasons for this, for this mentality. So initially, everybody went to you know the other families that had other kids, and they wanted to you know they they basically got custody of them. But Halima still didn't have a child that you know to to take custody of, and to basically she didn't have a contract, so to speak. She didn't have uh, you know things weren't figured out yet. So she mentioned to her husband that okay, you know maybe we should just go and and you know take custody of that orphan child. And so the husband said, okay, you know, let, let's go ahead and do that. So they did. And initially you can tell there was a little bit of, of hesitancy from everyone, not just her, but from everyone. There is a reason why others went to other families first. Now it's important for us to note that on their way into Mecca, the, the, the riding animal that they had nowadays, we would say their car, it was, you know, the animal was very weak and very slow and very meek. Um, so that was going into Mecca. So they were kind of at the back of the pack, you know, with the rest of their tribe when they're going in. But then all of a sudden, subhanAllah, as soon as they took custody of the Prophet ﷺ, all of a sudden that same animal, right, was now the fastest one, was now the strongest one, was now at the forefront to the point where her people were asking her, like, did you get a new animal? And she's like, no, it's the same one. But you can see immediately the barakah, right, the blessing of when they when they embraced the Prophet ﷺ, when they accepted him, when they when they took him uh, into their custody, not only that, she herself had her own baby, had her own young son, and because their their tribe they were struggling with famine, 
right? Because they had very limited access to food. You know, their, their animals were, uh, were, were very weak and struggling. And also the people, they weren't properly nourished. So she herself struggled to produce an adequate amount of milk herself for her own son. But lo and behold, as, as soon as she has custody of the Prophet ﷺ, the riding animal, all of a sudden, it becomes the best one. And then she also has a full supply of milk for the Prophet ﷺ and for her, and for her biological son. On top of that, when they get back, the animals, they had the livestock, they had the sheep, the goats, etc. Their people, they were struggling with famine. But for this one family, their animals, now they were full and they had milk and they had extra milk and they had... So people were, were confused, like, what is, what is happening? And they recognized that it must be because of this baby. This must be a blessed baby, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. To the point where, when the contract, so to speak, when it, when it had expired, and when Halima went back into Mecca to speak with Amina, the biological mother of the Prophet, now she was negotiating with Amina, convincing Amina, please let us keep him longer. right? Because they saw the fruit of what it meant to have this incredible baby. So from the beginning, you find Rahma, right? So them taking custody of him, that was Rahma for her, for her husband, for her biological son. So that the other innocent that other innocent baby in their family. So now he's getting all the milk that he wants, his, you know, his nourishment, right? His his health improved. So all of them benefited from the Prophet. ﷺ. So think of Think of you know this in connection with rahmah and and the rahmah the Prophet would embody especially later on as an adult. Uh, the generosity the Prophet would embody later on as an adult. So this ties in with when when he was a child. So Halima convinces uh, Amina to you know to let them keep him a bit longer. So they do. But then when the whole situation happens, when the whole uh, incident happens, when the Prophet as a child basically had heart surgery, والسلام, you know, that, that was uh, concerning to them. So then he was essentially returned to his mother. Uh, as we know, uh, Amina passed away when the Prophet was six. And then his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, who was uh, an absolute legend, not just within Mecca among Quraysh, but in all of Arabia. And uh, he had like a special seat in front of the Kaaba. So he's, he's the, the, the leader of Quraysh. And Quraysh, they're the leaders of Mecca. And Mecca was like the, the, the most significant city. Uh, Mecca along with Ta'if, but even between them, Mecca was still more, uh, more significant because of the Kaaba. Allah references this in these two cities, Mecca and Ta'if, in Surah Al-Zukhruf, uh, when there were some people saying, uh, So the two great cities that are referenced here are Mecca and Ta'if. But between the two, Mecca was 1A and Ta'if was when be if we think of it in that way. Abdul Muttalib, he was an absolute legend among you know the, the Arabs. He had a special seat in front of the Kaaba. And nobody would sit there. Nobody would dare sit there because of who he was and what that seat represented. But he would have his grandson, the Prophet ﷺ, sit there, even, when, even though he was still a boy, even uh, when he was still uh, very young. And he would mention that I, I see something in him. So it wasn't just that he was his grandson. Naturally, the grandchild will be the apple of the eye of the grandparent. But aside from that, objectively, he would say that he saw something unique in him. He saw something special in him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abdul Muttalib passes away when the Prophet is eight, alayhi salatu salam, and then he ends up in the custody of his, his kakajan, right? His father's brother, uh, Abu Talib. And... Um, 
he basically lived with him until he ended up uh, growing up and becoming a mature adult. The point that I want to highlight, from the beginning you find this, this presence of Rahmah, right? So, so Halima benefited, right, from the Rahmah of the Prophet. From, he, he's still a child, he's, he's not like consciously doing this, but you find Allah showering blessings upon him. Even before that, even, you know, during uh, his mother's pregnancy and delivery, so on and so forth, there was always this connection of Rahmah uh, with him, sallallahu so number one, when he was a child, number two, when he was a husband. And again, reminder for myself, first and foremost, whenever I come across these different stories, what I, what, what I want to do, what I try to do is to think, okay, how can I do something now related to this story? Right? What can I do now? How can I benefit practically now from these different stories, from the life of the Prophet? It would be a huge travesty if I approached the seerah in a way where I thought to myself, you know the seerah, this happened over a thousand years ago, back then in a different part of the world. So there isn't really anything that I can take from this. There isn't really you know, any benefit that I can take from this. In reality, it's the exact opposite. There's so much benefit that we can take from the example, from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, from different angles. So when he was a husband, right? what's very interesting, when you look at the example of when the Prophet ﷺ married Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha, the, the, the more common, uh, more well-known opinion was that he was 25 and she was 40. Another opinion was that he was 25 and she was uh, 28. Allah knows best, perhaps he was 28 because after they got married, they had six children. And as we know nowadays, if somebody, the Prophet is the Prophet, no question. والسلام, if Allah wants something to happen, kun fayakun. But even then, if we look at it from, from another perspective, uh, if the, uh, if Nowadays, for example, if a woman is pregnant after like the age of 35, especially after 40, by default, it's a very high-risk pregnancy. Uh, so for, for her to have six children after they got married, Allah knows best, it seems perhaps more likely that she was 28. That would be uh, more uh, realistic for us to understand, especially because they had six children. She had also been married twice before. She also had children before marrying the Prophet ﷺ. Look at the details in their marriage, though. And the kind of stuff that we see very commonly now within the, the, the general Muslim community is very different than what they embodied, the Prophet and Khadija between the two of them. One, she had been married before, before the Prophet. So nowadays, some men, they would think, I don't want to marry a woman if she's ever been married before. What about Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha? She was not married once before, but twice before. And she had children before radiallahu anha. In addition to that, she was older than him, right? To each their own, people have their preferences, that's totally fine. But the point is, the stigmas should not be stigmas. If someone prefers something else, that's up to them, that's fine, inshallah. But it shouldn't be treated as if this is something forbidden, as if this is something that is not allowed in our deen. We should take a step back and rethink, why do we think about things the way we think about them, and how do we? why do we approach them how... We approach them. So she was older than him. She had been married twice before. She had children before. And on top of that, she was wealthier than him, which is also interesting. It's also interesting that she was the one who hired him. And you learn a lot about people when you work with them, right? For better or for worse, hopefully for the better for all of us, inshallah. Before hiring the Prophet, she had, so she was very wealthy. And everything was, was uh, you know, amazing about her including the fact that she was very wealthy. So she would hire people, she would hire men to basically go and, and trade on her behalf. But 
you know, she wasn't too impressed uh, with any of them in terms of honesty. And, you know, they may try to swindle some money out of her and take advantage uh, of her. And then she heard about this amazingly trustworthy man named Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So she decides, okay, to hire him. Let's, you know, let's see how this goes. And through his honesty, think of the barakah of his honesty, alayhi salatu wasalam. So there's a, uh, you know, there's a journey that he goes on and her servant, Maysara, was, uh, was with him. And not only did he basically get the number, not only did he meet his quota, he actually ended up profiting more. No pun intended. The Prophet ended up profiting more, alayhi salatu wasalam, through his honesty. We may think that, okay, let's cheat someone in business so we can make more money. The Prophet never did that. Far from that, alayhi salatu wasalam, he was completely honest and transparent. And through that honesty and transparency, Allah gave him more than actually what was anticipated. And on top of that, he didn't take, you know, he didn't take anything for himself. He didn't, you know, swindle anything. He didn't cheat whatsoever, alayhi salatu wasalam. So they get back, you know, there's more profit than expected. And uh, Maysara, her servant, only has the most positive things to say about him. So everything was very, 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 very positive. And this was very telling in his favor, alayhi salatu wasalam. So she actually ends up being the one to propose to him. Another thing that's very different in you know, the, the general Muslim community nowadays. She was interested in him. By this point, she knew what she wanted. right? She knew what a marriage took and she understood the most important thing. There are many important things, but the most important thing is the heart of the person, is the character of the person, alayhi salatu wasalam. So she mentions to a friend of hers that she was interested in the Prophet. So... So that mutual friend basically goes and talks to the Prophet and asks him, are you looking to get married? And his immediate response is, I can't afford it. And so she asks him, like, what if that wasn't an issue? And, you know, he wants more information. And she mentions that Sayyidah Khadija was uh, basically interested in him. Things ended up working out. They ended up getting married. So just from that, you can, you can see that there must have been so many amazing things about him. For She could have married anyone that she wanted from Quraysh. She would often get proposals from wealthy men and they had status and lineage and this, that and the other, but she wasn't interested. She was more concerned with the heart of the of the man that she wanted to marry and no heart can compare to the heart of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. In terms of the, if you look at the different stories of the Prophet later on, so when he was married to Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha, he was only married to her and they were, they were married for uh, about 25 years and then she passes away radiallahu anha and he loved her so much, her passing away was one of the key uh, like pain points in connection with the year of sorrow. Right? There were several pain points, losing Sayyidah Khadija, losing his, his beloved uncle Abu Talib, and then Ta'if happened shortly after that. So there's so much pain in the heart of the Prophet. That year was known as the year of sorrow. But out of all of these things, it must have been perhaps most difficult for him to lose Sayyidah Khadija because of how much, not just the love between them, but especially how much support that she gave him, that she offered uh, for him, alayhi salatu wasalam, during the, the first 10 years of his mission. And he would reference this later on, that she supported me when nobody else did. She believed in me when nobody else did. Who was the go-to person for him, alayhi salatu wasalam, after he initially receives revelation, right? Iqra, when the story of Iqra happens, his immediate reaction after that incident was to go home, to seek refuge in his home, 
with his wife, Sayyidah Khadija, and he's asking her, cover me, cover me. So she covers him, and he mentions what had happened, and he says, you know, I'm worried about myself. Like, he's trying to process what had happened, and from the get-go, because she had known him, she had known him very well, better than anyone else, through and through, from the east to the west, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she, her immediate response was, Wallahi, Allah, Allah would never disgrace you. Because you have these amazing qualities, right? You take care of these people, you help these people, you maintain family ties, all these things. What she was telling him was, we may not fully understand what had happened yet, which is why, you know, immediately after that, she took him to her cousin Waraqa bin Nawfal, uh, because he was basically a uh, scholar in, uh, in religion. So she wanted to, to take the Prophet to, to him so he, could try to, so he could shed some light on the matter. But her immediate, her immediate response was, there's no way this is a bad thing. Allah would never send anything bad to you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, because of how amazing you are, alayhi salatu wasalam. This was her immediate response. And then, okay, let's go get more information. But for sure, even before we get that information, Allah would never disgrace you. There's no way this is a bad thing. It has to be a good thing. Let's go find out more information. So she was, you know, really there for him. And he, he really deeply appreciated this. So even after she passed away, he would... You know, he would talk about her and he would uh, mention very positive things about her, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another uh, example regarding the kind of husband that he was. And subhanAllah, this is actually very uh, delicately beautiful when you think of it. So by this point, this was uh, in Medina. The Prophet had several wives at this time, alayhi salatu wasalam. And uh, one of his wives, Zainab uh, binti Jahsh, she, uh, she was you know, wealthier than uh, the other wives. So she could afford this amazing delicacy of honey. And she knew that the Prophet loved honey, So she would often, you know, provide him with honey. And uh, Sayyidah Aisha and, and Sayyidah Hafsa, you know, they kind of, they were talking about it. And from their perspective, how, they, how can they compete with honey? Right? They, they couldn't compete with it. So they said, okay, what well, we're going to... So you also find the human side of them. You find the human side of the Prophet, the human side of the companions, the human side of, of his wives. And this makes them much more uh, relatable for us. So Sayyidah Aisha and Sayyidah Hafsa, they, they said, okay, so what we're going to do is, you know, we know that whenever he goes there, then he gets honey. So after that, when he comes, you know, to visit each of us individually, we're each going to remark, but we can't give away the secret that we're planning this. Uh, we're each going to remark that, you know, something smells a little bit funny from his breath, alayhi salatu wasalam. Just to, you know, try to like deter him from, from uh, enjoying that honey. So, so they did this, and subhanAllah, this is the heart of the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam. Uh, and this is a wrinkle that's often overlooked in this story. The Prophet was such a kind, loving, compassionate, merciful husband. His response was, because he heard this remark one time, from one wife and then the same remark you know soon after that from another wife so his response was like he was thinking oh you know they're each telling me this and you know it must be because of the, the honey so he his he decided والسلام, to make honey haram for himself <laughs> he's like because he was so concerned about keeping you know, his family happy. He wanted them to be happy with him. He didn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable in his presence. So there was this remark and there was that remark. So he was worried about it. He, he didn't want to make them uncomfortable. He didn't want to produce any uh, bad smell, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
So his response was, okay, I'm not having honey anymore. But then Allah, you know, recalibrates the situation, Surah Tahrim is revealed, and Allah basically keeps the Prophet from making it haram and, and uh, basically told the Prophet ﷺ about what had, what had happened. But look at the kind of husband he was, right? How deeply concerned he was. So for example, if, you know, maybe there's a wife who, who mentions to the husband, you know, why do you wear this t-shirt? It has all these like paint stains on it. It has holes in it. You, you've had it for like 10 years. Why do you keep wearing, you know, this horrible t-shirt? It looks bad. It smells bad. And so the idea is, uh, okay, okay, honey, right? No pun intended. Okay, fine. I'll go ahead and, and uh, get rid of it. And by the way, if it's in that horrible condition, we shouldn't go and donate it. We shouldn't, you know, last Friday there was the, this uh, drive to help uh, Afghan refugees. May Allah accept the effort and help them and help us to help them. Hopefully, inshallah, people only gave really good quality stuff. Hopefully. I have no idea, but that's my hope, right? Why? Now, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. I used to work for another nonprofit and we had a warehouse and, and we would accept in-kind donations. And some people had beautiful ihsan. They would go buy brand new clothes, take off the tags, wash them, dry them, press them, fold them neatly and perfectly, put them in a box. This was the 0.01%. Some people, they would show up with the worst clothes, really with holes in them and in the worst condition. And subhanAllah, they think that they're doing people a favor by giving them basically garbage in the form of clothing. Like, when Sayyidina Aisha, when she would give sadaqah, she would, she would perfume the money. And she was asked, why, why would you do that? She said, because it's in Allah's hands before it's in the hands of whoever I'm giving it to. So look, look at the attention to detail. Look at the ihsan. Look at you know, the, this, this very high level of spiritual excellence. So the Prophet, he was so concerned. Okay, I, I don't want to make them... Uh, worried at all. So the idea is, okay, how can we practically benefit from this? How can we produce ihsan? And if we're, for example, regarding, going back to the t-shirt, if we, if we want to give something in sadaqah, we should give good quality sadaqah. This is what the Prophet taught us, as well as those uh, around him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Moving on to another, uh, this category is, is uh, especially beautiful. The Prophet, alayhi as a father and grandfather, especially as a grandfather. Yes, no doubt as a father as well. Um, but there, there's a reason why I say especially the grandfather, and it ties in with him being a father. Does anybody know how many children the Prophet had throughout his life? 17? You're very close. Just take off the teen. Seven. MashaAllah. So you were thinking seven. It's just been a long day. Right? So he had seven children. And how many of them... This is like such a you know, painful thought to even think about how many of them passed away in his lifetime? How many of them passed away? Six out of seven. SubhanAllah, losing, you know in English we don't have a word for someone who loses a child. Like The pain is so unbearable. If somebody, there are secrets in every language. If somebody loses, uh, if the wife loses the husband, right, then she's the widow. If the husband loses the wife, then he's a widower. If a parent, if a, if a child, you know, loses uh, their father or their parents, then they're an orphan. But for the parent or the parents that loses a child, we don't even have a term for that in English. Subhanallah. The Prophet ﷺ, he lost six out of his seven children. And the, the only one who survived was Sayyidah Fatima And even she passed away uh, about six months after him. 
So put yourself in his shoes, right? So early on, he loses uh, Al-Qasim when, uh, when, he's, when he's young, when he's a baby, essentially. And uh, he also loses uh, his second son, Abdullah. This is still in Mecca when he's a baby. Eventually, he, lo- you know, he loses his other daughters as well. Later, much later, he would lose um, his third son, Ibrahim, from Mary al-Qatiyah. Um, so I mentioned that because in his heart, there must have been so much weight and so much pain in connection with that. So then when he has grandchildren, this is unique, this is different. These aren't, he's not going to take them for granted. Right? He never did with, with, with his children. He, he wouldn't take people for granted at all. But the point is, there is going to be a special appreciation for the grandchildren because he had felt the pain, the bitterness of losing several children. So now when the next generation is there, they're beyond extra, 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 extra special. No one can come, can come close to them. I'll give you an example. When the Prophet, uh, if he was leading prayer, and he would mention this himself, if he was leading prayer, and he, would men- he mentioned that sometimes if he has the intention to make it a little bit longer, and even then it's not a little bit longer like to recite all of Surah Al-Baqarah in Aisha prayer or something, because he corrected Sayyidina Mu'adh, when, when he was leading prayer, and he was reciting Surah Al-Baqarah and made it very long, there was a man praying behind Mu'adh ibn Jabal, a great companion. He actually, like, he broke his prayer, he just went and prayed by himself. It was taking too long. He had such a long day, and it just kept going on and on. So, so he responded in this way. Sayyidina Mu'adh got upset with him, but when the Prophet found out about what happened, the Prophet got upset with Sayyidina Mu'adh, not with the man. And he, because he was telling Sayyidina Mu'adh, don't make prayer difficult for people. Instead, recite, وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا أَعْلَى وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا To recite shorter surahs, make it, make it easy for people, make it practical for people. And when you look at the example of the Prophet ﷺ, he would typically recite from, uh, typically from, from the, the end of the Qur'an, from the last four or four and a half uh, juz roughly from say Surah Al-Hujurat until the end you had other surahs, Surah Sajda and, and uh, some other examples as well but typically he would recite from the end of the Qur'an and typically he wouldn't make his prayer too long out of consideration for his community for those who were uh, who were elders, for those who were sick for people have lives, right? people, they have things that they have to get home to that they have to get to so he would make it very, he would facilitate it for them. He would make it very practical for people, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So when, when he mentions that, you know, sometimes I would think of extending it, don't think of like Surah Al-Baqarah, think of maybe a little bit longer than what he would usually do, but still within, uh, you know, practical parameters, alayhi salatu wasalam. So he said that sometimes he would think of making it a little bit longer, but then he would hear a baby crying in the background, and so he would, he would, shorten, his, he would shorten his prayer. Right, out of consideration, because that mom is going to be considered for that baby. Right? Which shows you that it was common for the women, it was common for mothers to also pray in the message of the Prophet because they wanted to pray behind him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So you find him uh, as in these, in these types of uh, situations, so as a father and, uh, and grandfather. So keep that in mind, that if, if he heard a baby crying, then he, he would be very concerned about that. Right? Mercy to, uh, to creation. But then you, on the other hand, you have these uh, examples, these stories of when he's leading prayer, and then 
you know, his grandchildren, they would come, they're still little, they're still munchkins, and they would come and they would climb on him. When he's leading prayer in the masjid, right, in jama'ah, and so he's leading prayer, and if he's in sajda and they climb on him, he would wait for them to get off. Look, look at like, he had so much deep love for them. Again, remember, he already lost several children. So now with the grandkids, it's a whole different ballgame. So they climb on his back, and out of rahmah to them, because he's thinking, you know, the, these adults behind me, they can take it, they'll be fine. But for these, you know, for my grandkids, and he would mention this after the prayer, that, you know, I didn't want to inconvenience them. <laughs> like, look at, look, at, look at the heart of this amazing grandfather, والسلام, so sweet, so kind and, and, uh, and compassionate. So he waited in sajda so long that people like, they didn't know if something happened to him or not. But then afterwards he clarified that, you know, I just, I was waiting for them to get off. And think about it. When uh, we, we talked about this, you know, with the students before this, if, when kids are that age, if they're climbing on grandpa, if they're, you know, if they're playing, do you think they're going to be perfectly silent the whole time? No, there's no way. <laughs> they're going to be making noise. They're going to be making a lot of noise because they're, they're, they're just having the time of their life. And it's also uh, interesting to note that in order, and scholars have commented on this, and, and it's so beautiful, subhanAllah, in order for young kids to feel that comfortable doing that with their grandpa, with their grandfather, والسلام, in public, in the masjid, in front of people, in, in front of a bunch of grown men and women, because it was common for, for the women in the community to pray behind the Prophet as well, والسلام, in order for them to do that, they must have already done it so many times at home, so many times behind closed doors. And you have stories of, you know, when uh, one companion or another goes to see the Prophet and he's already on his hands and knees, right? We've all probably done this with, with our kids. You're pretending that you're a horse or something and your kid or your kids, they're on your back. So different companions, they would go to see him. One time Sayyidina Umar, he goes to see the Prophet ﷺ and he's on his hands and knees, you know, crawling around. This is the, the best of creation, being the best grandpa, alayhi So he's crawling around and, and, you know, one or two of his, between, it was either one or both of uh, Hassan Hussein, radiallahu anhum, uh, on his back. So he's crawling around and Sayyidina Umar, he sees this. And so he praises the Prophet, right? Look at the, the, the immediate love that they had for the Prophet, alayhi So he said, what, like, what an amazing ride. Referring to the Prophet, alayhi And so the Prophet responds, what an amazing rider. Right? Praising his, his grandson, or what, what amazing writers, uh, if, if there were two of them, very hands-on, very, uh, very present, very loving, very kind, compassionate, merciful, والسلام. So when, when we have these stories you know, of him as a father, if he was sitting down and uh, say at home, and then Sayyidah Fatima came to visit him, he would stand up and he would kiss her, and then he would, you know, he would uh, offer his seat to her out of love and compassion to, you know, to uh, go ahead. I want you to take my seat. Imagine the Prophet ﷺ giving up his seat for you. Sayyidah Fatima was, uh, you know, honored in this way. And this was his character as a father. So it should make me think, okay, what's something that I can do practically, lovingly, mercifully, you know, for my kids? How can I show my daughter that I love her? How can I show my son that I love him? How can I, how can I take these fruits from the, the prophetic tree, والسلام, and then you know, nourish myself with them, and then also my family with them? How can I take these ideas and turn them into practice? May Allah help all of us to do so as best we can. 
Amin Rabbil Alameen. Moving on from there. So first, as a child and the, the, the mercy that was connected with him, with uh, Halima and her family when they were taking care of him. Secondly, as, uh, as a husband, there's the uh, example of Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha uh, proposing to him and you know that whole dynamic. Uh, the example of, from Surah Tahrim, the third category, the Prophet as a father, as a grandfather, alayhi salatu wasalam. The fourth category as a general. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting. When you look at the life of the Prophet, 23 years, 23 years, and he completely changed the world until now. That, that's not something that, that's clearly not normal. And it shows us what happens when we connect with La ilaha illallah. Right, look at how many doors Allah opened for him. And it's not just 23 years. 13 of those years were in persecution. It's not like he was head of state for 23 years. He was head of state for 10 years. But we have so much nourishment. There's so much protein from his example as, uh, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather. So behind closed doors, but then also in public, how he dealt with his community. I'll mention two examples connected to him being specifically a general. And when you look at all the different hats, so to speak, that the Prophet wore, he was the pristine example in every single one. This is unheard of. Someone, and, and this is why Michael Hart, a non-Muslim uh, historian, when he listed out, it's a, it's a recent book, when he listed out the 100 most influential people in human history, he put the Prophet as number one. And his rationale was, as a non-Muslim, was because of how successful the Prophet was religiously, and then also politically. Usually it was one or the other, but for the Prophet it was both. And it wasn't like he was very successful in one and a little bit successful in the other. He was very successful in both. And this is the only person in human history to have that level of success Excuse me, in, in both categories. And they happen to be intertwined within the same person. And as a side note, on top of that, you look at how simply the Prophet lived. And how generous the Prophet was and how, you know, one time he, he was with the man and this man was like looking at this valley full of livestock. And, and the, the, the Prophet had authority over it. So the Prophet asked him, he said, do you like what you see? He said, yeah, I mean, that must have been worth, what, millions of dollars nowadays? So the Prophet asked him, do you like what you see? He says, yeah, he says, take it, it's yours. <laughs> like, this man goes back to his people you know, he accepted Islam, telling them accept Islam. He must be a prophet. He gives like he doesn't care. He gives like he doesn't fear poverty. I remember reading that story in Martin Ling's book on the seat of the Prophet when I was going to San Jose, say I used to take the light rail. It was like 45 minutes to an hour each way. So it was a good time to either, you know, listen to Quran, read some seerah, just, you know, anything beneficial. And I remember reading that story in Martin Ling's book on the light rail, and it brought me to tears. I had to pause and to think, what? Like, how do you do that? Hey, it's like someone telling someone, hey, do you like this amazing mansion in Beverly Hills? Of course, this is amazing. Okay, it's yours. Here are the keys. Like, he didn't even flinch. What was his goal? Iman. To cultivate Iman within people. The heart of that person mattered way more to him than that valley full of livestock and however many acres and whatever. What mattered more was the heart of the person. If this gesture impacts their heart and brings them closer to Allah, then it's more than worth it. 
And you find many examples of his generosity, just giving and giving and giving. Uh, but going back to the, the specific topic of him as a general, I'll mention two examples. One, during the Battle of Uhud, during the Battle of Uhud, and this was when there was the counterattack and, and uh, you know, things were, uh, were extremely chaotic at this point. Because initially, the Muslims had basically won the battle, but then we know what ended up happening, and there was a counterattack from the other side. Um, so there was absolute chaos. A number of uh, companions ended up losing their lives because of it. And the Prophet himself was very severely injured, and he, uh, there was a time when he was knocked unconscious, and so a rumor had spread that the Prophet was killed. And there were companions who just, when they heard that, in the heat of battle, some of them just sat down. Like, they, they didn't know how to process losing the Prophet, because he meant more to them than themselves. Alayhi salatu wasalam. There was complete confusion. And later on, Sayyidah Aisha would ask the Prophet ﷺ, was that day of Uhud the most difficult day of your life? There, there was some, some chain mail that, because one of the times when he was hit, ﷺ, uh, his tooth was chipped, and, and he also, like due to Uhud, he also had some, some of his armor, some chain mail that was deeply embedded in his face. ﷺ. And so, look, subhanAllah, look at the love of the Sahaba. One Sahabi is one of the ten... Uh, Promised Jannah, this all-star team, so to speak, of companions. Um, I forget, if anyone knows which one, please remind me. I forget if it was Abu Ubaidah, was it Talha, was... I forget which one specifically. But one of them, they, they, it was so deeply embedded in his face, when they removed it after the battle uh, was over, when they pulled it out of his face with their teeth, they lost a tooth. They, they actually lost two teeth. And because of that, they ended up with the lisp. Because of that... But this is so beautiful, subhanAllah. You had like, bullying was the furthest thing from these people. So that sahabi was willing to literally sacrifice his teeth for the Prophet So he did. And they would actually like praise him because he had that lisp after that. They didn't make fun of him. They didn't, you know, bully him, say mean things because you talk this way or that way. They praised him because of the reason why he lost his teeth and he ended up with that... Um, with that speaking condition, What's the specific part of Uhud that I want to mention? Connecting this concept of Rahmah with the Prophet In the heat of battle, there's this counterattack, things are chaotic, uh, the Prophet's life is at stake, there's a whole lot going on, and the Prophet is bleeding by this point, When you come across these stories, like it forces you to say, وسلم, with the deepest love and respect for him. In, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle, this is what the Prophet's going through, what he's dealing with. What do you think the dua that he was making was regarding his people? What do you think it was? Oh Allah, curse them. Oh Allah, punish them. They're not listening. They didn't listen for 13 years in Mecca. 13 years. We don't want to do da'wah for 13 minutes and be patient. 13 days, you know, we struggle with a family member or a friend because they don't want to pray anymore, they don't want to be Muslim anymore, and we think after 13 days, okay, khalas, like, you know, that they're just never going to return, their fate is sealed. No, what if they come back? May Allah bring them back. Whenever, whenever I hear about youth leaving Islam, the first thing that comes to mind, one, someone must have misrepresented the Prophet to them, misrepresented Islam to them, that's one. Two, there's no way they actually know who the Prophet was, To know him is to love him. When you learn more about him, 
you love him more and more and more His dua at this point in time was not cursing his people, was not, oh Allah, destroy them, oh Allah. You know, they, they, they didn't listen for, for 13 years in Mecca and then I moved to Medina and they're still giving me a hard time, they're still fighting me, you know, even after being in Medina uh, for a couple of years and this and now I'm hurting and I'm bleeding and subhanAllah, he's asking Allah, oh Allah, forgive my people because they don't know. Allahumma gfili qawmi fa innahum la ya'lamun, alayhi salatu wasalam. You come across this story and it, like, it makes you pause. Like, how do you do that? Like, that, that's not normal. I say that in the best of ways regarding the Prophet because any of us in that situation, right, if we, if we get like a, a prick of a thorn from a friend or family member, we, yeah, Allah, I complain to you about them and the dua of the oppressed is heard and, and, and you know, they pricked me with a thorn. None of us should prick people with thorns. Obviously, we understand that. But the point is, his heart was inclined towards rahmah even in that moment. So he's asking Allah, oh Allah, forgive my people because they don't know. What's amazing is many of those people he was asking Allah to forgive, many of them ended up becoming Muslim. Khalid bin Walid is leading that, that counterattack. He, he played the most pivotal role in that counterattack. He ends up becoming Muslim. And he goes from fighting the Prophet with his sword in that battle to becoming the sword of Allah. Radiallahu anhu. So look, look at how that dua was answered. Abu Sufyan, who was the general of the army of Quraysh in that battle, later on he becomes Muslim. You have different examples of, of Wahshi. He assassinates uh, Sayyidina Hamza, radiallahu anhu. The, the Prophet was so close with Hamza, radiallahu anhu, because they were basically the same age. Hamza may have been a year older than him, but they, they, he was his uncle, but they were basically the same age. And they grew up, you know, very close to each other. Plus, if you think about it, you know how they say sometimes opposites attract. Their personalities were so different and that tied in with them being close. The Prophet was the extremely gentle and kind and, and, and very, very, very soft. And then Sayyidina Hamza was like, you know, tough and strong. And so they complemented each other very well. And you find that type of dynamic, even when Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu when he's Khalifa, Right, his personality was very mellow. Uh, generally, obviously, you know, when it came down to it, he'd be on the front lines. But his his personality was very calm and very mellow. And then, who was who was the head of his army? Was Khalid bin Walid, right? Who who had the the like the stronger personality, you could say, like more of a strong, tough personality. But then, when Sayyidina Umar is Khalifa, now he had this strong, tough personality. And he, he appoints Abu Ubaidah to now become the head of the army who had a softer personality. So there, it's interesting when you look at these different dynamics and how they would complement each other. In Uhud, Sayyidina, so Sayyidina Hamza, he was such an amazing fighter, the only way to kill him was from behind him. <laughs> like the only way to kill him was when he didn't know you were there, and then someone was specifically hired to go out of their way, who was an expert marksman, Wahshi, to, to, to go and, and you know, hit him with his spear. That was the only way that you could kill him, because if you were going to face him in one-on-one -on -one combat, there was no hope for you. Hamza's martyred, and we know what happened after the battle, we won't mention it now though, radiallahu anhu. Wahshi, this was an Uhud, later on he becomes Muslim. Subhanallah, so it, it makes you wonder like, who was this person, the Prophet and how, how did he even have that thought in his heart at that time, alayhi
That was his dua, and, and you find the abundant rahmah found within that. That's one example of him as a general. Another example, um, so all of this happened primarily because of who? Because of Quraysh. Just a few years later, now he's marching towards Mecca. He's about to conquer Mecca. And a lot of them are the same people as, uh, as before Abu Sufyan. He's still in Mecca. Abu Sufyan, he becomes Muslim like basically right before the Prophet officially conquers Mecca. Um, so he, he conquers Mecca. He has the attention of everyone. And he mentions, والسلام, and this shows the power of your niyyah. He must have had this niyyah, this intention, the whole way through. This type of reaction is not something sporadic, it's not something random. This must have been something premeditated, and the Prophet must have had intentions of mercy from the very beginning of his mission. Because he hung on to that mercy through and through, through everything. Yes, there were, like at the time of the conquest of Mecca, you had a few people who had clearly crossed the red line, so they got in trouble. But then for everyone else, what does the Prophet say, He tells them what Prophet Yusuf told his brothers, I'm not going to hold anything against you today. Go, you guys are free. So if anyone goes and, and you know they say that, oh, Islam spread by the sword, which sword? <laughs> like the Prophet has an army of 10,000. He's conquering the city where he went through very difficult times within that city, that same city that he, was, uh, that he was born and he spent so much time in. Eventually he's forced out, which Waraka bin Nafan mentioned to him would, uh, would eventually happen, Now he's conquering that same city. And they are literally at his mercy. But what was his response? Go. And because of that rahmah, they became Muslim, subhanAllah. So when, when, it, when it comes to the prophetic example, this is why I say like if they're youth turning away from Islam, like they probably don't know what Islam is. They probably have no idea what they're turning away from. And they're shown some ugly misrepresentation. It could be, may Allah protect all of us, but it could be from a parent. It could be from a teacher. It could be from, you know, bad experiences here or there, you know, whatever the case may be. May Allah bring them back. Because if they turned away from an ugly misrepresentation, we ask Allah to bring them back to Islam through a beautiful representation of Islam and especially of the Prophet wasallam. So as a general, there's this example, this snippet from, uh, from Uhud and then also from uh, the conquest of Mecca wasallam. And then now for this one, it, it's, I was trying to think how should I, how should I label it? And I just put Prophet because it, it'll make sense in a moment. So there are a couple stories that I know time is, uh, I need to conclude. But we all know, the, I'll go through these quickly. We all know the example of when the man urinated in the, the Prophet's message in front of him, and he was the one telling the Sahaba, because they wanted to jump the guy, right? They wanted to, you know, take care of business. He was the one telling them, no, let him finish. And then after he finishes, go and clean it up. The Prophet goes, speaks to him kindly. We don't do this here. You know, this is a masjid. We, we, we pray here. We remember Allah here. We recite Quran here. That man, subhanAllah, the Prophet had this amazing gift. When he would correct people, they loved him more after he corrected them. That's unheard of, Usually people, oh, let me give them nasiha. And they like verbally go and punch him in the face and they wonder how come like they don't want to listen to me. Well, what was the approach? Did it have rahmah or not? The Prophet goes to this man, explains to him, and the man responds, you know, may Allah have mercy on me and Muhammad and no one else. 
And the Prophet said, why, why take something vast and make it narrow? Look at the rahmah in this example, alayhi salatu wasalam. The Prophet asking a boy in his community about his bird after his pet bird died. This is in Medina. He's head of state. So he asked him, Ya Aba Umair, ma al-Nughair. The boy's pet bird passed away, so the Prophet's asking him, right, what happened to your pet bird? He cares about the heart of this boy. He cares about the next generation, alayhi salatu wasalam. Sayyidina Anas bin Malik commenting later on after the Prophet passed away, alayhi salatu wasalam, regarding his character. This is amazing. He served him for 10 years. His mother went to the Prophet when he arrives in Medina. She says, I don't have much, but I have a son. He's going to serve you. Just, he's at your service whenever you want. So later on, Anas would say that he served the Prophet for 10 years. 10 years. And not once did he say to me, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? It's amazing. This also shows us the Prophet probably didn't ask too much of him anyways. The Prophet wasn't overbearing. Oh, there's a servant. Okay, do everything for me. I'm going to have you do a million things. The Prophet was very, you know, independent. He, his clothes, his shoes, he would patch them up and he would, you know, take care of uh, most of his affairs himself. But maybe once in a while, can you do this? Can you do that? And even if one time he sent Anas to go get something from the market and then he's a boy, he's still a kid at this time. So he goes, he finds some kids playing, he plays with them. And the Prophet comes looking for him because he didn't come back. He finds him playing. He asked him, did you get what I asked you to get? He said, no. And he lost the money. <laughs> the Prophet, he just, okay, that's fine. He didn't make a big deal out of it, alayhi salatu He was very, look, look at the rahmah, look at it embodied in these different day-to-day -day scenarios. A man came to the Prophet and confessed to him that he had kissed a woman that he was not married to. And Sayyidina Umar was there, so he asked the man, like, why did you uncover yourself when Allah had covered you? And the Prophet was waiting to see if any revelation would come, and some, some revelation came, is found at the end of Surah Hud, in which Allah basically mentions two concepts. One, for this man and others like him, hang on to your prayer, that's one, uh, because good deeds replace bad deeds, and then the ayah after that, and be patient, just hang on to it, trust the process, basically. But look at the rahmat, the man felt so comfortable approaching the Prophet with his mistake, he wanted... He wanted to seek guidance from the Prophet, and this was the, the, the rahmah that was given to him, alayhi salatu wasalam. I'll conclude with this. And then a quick dua, inshallah. There was a uh, Sahabi, Mufti Kamani mentions this. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, there's a, there was a companion, he asked the Prophet, like, do we have to go to Jannah? And the Prophet asked him, what do you mean? Like, it's a strange question. And the man, he says, well, here, you know, this is Medina, here, like, I can see you and I'm close to you. Right, look at the love for the Prophet. But you know, in Jannah, like you're gonna be <laughs> where are you gonna be? And you know, I don't know where I'm gonna be. Maybe I make it, hopefully I do, but even then, like, you know, probably not gonna be anywhere close to you. And look at the, the Rahmah of the Prophet. Like, you find the Prophet, people came to him with concerns, questions, problems, mistakes, but and the Prophet's lifting people up. The Prophet is giving them hope and giving them, you know, showing them mercy, alayhi salatu wasalam. So the Prophet responds, you will be with who you love, alayhi salatu wasalam. And so the Sahaba, they said, like, that was the happiest day for us. Right? Because they knew, if there was one thing, they knew for sure, they loved Allah and His Messenger. They knew without a shadow of a doubt, they loved the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam. So if he's saying, you'll be with who you love in the hereafter, and we love the Prophet, and through that love for him, we're going to be close to him, we'll be with him in Jannah. Uh, that's like the, the greatest gift, nothing can compare to that. 
sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We ask Allah to fill our hearts with mercy. We ask Allah to help us to learn about the Prophet and to also live like the Prophet as best we can, alayhi We ask Allah to help us to treat our children as the Prophet taught us to treat our children and our grandchildren. We ask Allah to help us to treat our spouses as the Prophet taught us, how we should treat our spouses. We ask Allah to treat people how the Prophet taught us to treat people. And the main staple of the example of the Prophet is mercy, right? We have staple foods in our diets. It could be rice. In some cultures, it could be bread. It could be, you know, Afghan bread. It's pretty legendary, mashallah. There are these staple foods. The staple quality that we need to have in our spiritual diets is rahmah. Everything else can change. You have chicken, you have lamb, you have this, you have... Alhamdulillah, all that is good, mashallah. But that staple has to be there, unless you're doing keto. That staple has to be there, and that staple, even if you're on keto, has to be rahmah. It has to be mercy. Nothing else matters. If we're praying all the time, and fasting all the time, and, and doing all the, reading Qur'an all the time, but there's, if there's no rahmah, then how are we going to end up in Jannah? Period. It's not an exaggeration. The Prophet warned the, the, he, he warned the companions that you will meet people, you will compare your prayer to their prayer and think nothing of your prayer. Think little of your, of your prayer. The same thing with fasting. And these people, they'll read Qur'an, but it won't pass their throats. And they'll leave this deen like, a, like a, an arrow leaves the boat. Or like an arrow goes through the game, the, the, the animal that they're aiming for. What is, what is the, and the Prophet described those same people, may Allah protect us, as the dogs of the people of the fire. But they're praying, but they're fasting, but there's Qur'an. There's a lot of praying and fasting in Qur'an, but they had no rahmah. Khawarij, they had no rahmah. They thought they were coming closer to Allah by assassinating Sayyidina Ali an in Ramadan. And they thought, oh, you know, this is a good thing. This is a good idea. Where is your prayer? Where is your fasting? Where is your Qur'an? Where is your rahmah? If you're praying but there's no rahmah, something has to change. If there's fasting and no rahmah, something has to change. Rahmah is the umbrella. Everything falls underneath it, including ibadah. Because Khawarij, the Prophet said that they, and they had marks on their faces, and when Abdullah ibn Abbas went to debate them, and praying and fasting and Qur'an. But if there's no rahmah, then it all amounts to nothing. So we want both. We want rahmah and we want the prayer and the fasting and the Qur'an. And, and these things should make us more merciful more compassionate. We ask Allah to fill our hearts with mercy. We ask Allah to fill our hearts with love for the Prophet And I think what Sidi Qa'ad mentioned is so beautiful and extremely important. It's not an annual thing. We want it to be a daily thing, a nightly thing to send salawat on the Prophet, to try to live as best we can as he taught us to live on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis. All of these things combined, not only one or the other, but the most important one, is daily, inshallah. We ask Allah to fill our hearts with love for Allah and His Messenger. We ask Allah to gather us with the Prophet in Firdaus because of our love for Him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We ask Allah to help us to be people of Qur'an. We ask Allah to help us to try our best to embody this ayah, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ May Allah make all of us sources of mercy for not only ourselves, but our family members, our friends, our community, and all of mankind for creation in general. We ask Allah to fill our hearts with this mercy. We ask Allah to guide us and forgive us. Rabbana taqabal minna innaka anta samir alim wa tuba innaka anta tawab rahim We ask Allah to accept our efforts and we ask Allah to overlook our mistakes. Amin rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala alihi wa sallam. It's already on. Yeah, because if this is on, then that one must be on.